couple of years ago, Walter Russell Mead, a fellow of the Council on Foreign Relations in New York, wrote a book identifying four traditions of American foreign policy, each one represented by a leading American statesman. The Hamiltonian tradition consists of a combination of commercialism and realism. The Jeffersonian tradition is apprehensive of the corrupting influence of the outside world and therefore sceptical concerning what Jefferson referred to as entangling alliances. The Jacksonian tradition is populist, patriotic, pugnacious and ultra-sensitive concerning any slight to the country's honour. And last, there is the Wilsonian tradition of crusading liberal internationalism. Throughout the country's history, Meade maintains, these four traditions have interacted with each other, sometimes mutually supporting, sometimes competing and conflicting, always overlapping, the mix changing as both domestic and international circumstance change. Reading Meade's book encourages reflection as to what a similar exercise concerning Australia's foreign policy traditions would yield. It seems to me that here there have been three main traditions. First, there is the Menzies tradition. This is a thoroughly realist, power and interest based tradition, although in Menzies' own case this was sometimes obscured by his taste for sentimental declarations of attachment to Britain and the Queen. This misled some into thinking that he was merely a romantic loyalist, which was a serious error. As a realist and a conservative, Menzies was sceptical of abstract general schemes. He looked to interest rather than principle as the motive for action, to history and experience rather than abstract reasoning for the basis of sound judgment. Menzies' central assumption was that in an international environment which was inherently dangerous and which in his day contained predators like Nazi Germany a militarised Japan, and later the Soviet Union, it was vital for a large, sparsely populated and geographically isolated Western country like Australia that the global balance of power should favour the leading democratic powers. And it was also vital that Australia should have close, friendly relations with those powers. In order to ensure that state of affairs, Australia must be prepared to support the United States and Britain politically and, when necessary, militarily. Such support was our insurance policy. It was also highly congenial to Menzies personally, since it was a policy which enabled Australia and Menzies himself to be wired in to the main game of global power politics in a way that was otherwise impossible. National interest and personal ambition, then, were both served by such a policy. But inherent in it was, and is, the risk of losing sight of a distinctive Australian identity and of exaggerating the cohesion and solidarity represented by the larger concept, whether it be the British Commonwealth, the West or the free world. The Menzies tradition is sceptical of most international institutions, including the United Nations, which it believes should be seen not as an alternative to power politics, 
but as power politics with a different facade, a different way for sovereign states to play essentially the same game. The Security Council is in reality no more than a kind of permanent conference of the great powers, where important and contentious issues can be discussed. Every member votes according to how it sees its own interests. It reflects the realities of international politics, but it doesn't and cannot change them significantly. The United Nations has no particular moral authority and, to make one's response to a course of action depend on whether or not it is sanctioned by the UN, is more a way of evading than making a moral choice. The Menzies tradition is, of course, strongest on the conservative side of politics, though it has its representatives across the spectrum. John Howard is probably its purest representative since Menzies himself. The second tradition is, I think, best identified as the Evert tradition. It's both strongly nationalist and internationalist. No contradiction is involved here, since internationalism is favoured not only on principle, but because international organisations are regarded as the most congenial and effective forums for a middle power like Australia to register its presence and extend its influence. This tradition is assertive and energetic. It's concerned to give Australia a high profile as a country capable of making a distinctive contribution to international affairs. Sometimes it leads to hyperactivity and attention-seeking. At the Paris Conference of 1946, to take an extreme example, Dr Evert, as leader of the Australian delegation, managed to table no fewer than 400 amendments. Sadly, only one of them was adopted. This tradition is concerned to establish Australia's independence, is sensitive to slights and about status. It is suspicious of great powers and will go out of its way to assert its independence of them, both in order to preserve its freedom of action and to strengthen its own sense of identity. It is inclined to believe that lesser powers like itself, being more detached, are better able than greater powers to assess the morality and justice of an issue objectively. Power politics tends to be seen as a chosen mode of behaviour, rather than as something inherent in a system of sovereign states and necessary for survival. One of Dr. Ever's favourite words was machinery, by which he meant organisational and institutional frameworks, procedures and rules. In his view, getting the machinery right was the secret of progress, for he believed that, to a great extent, form determines substance. Those of this persuasion tend to subscribe to the dictum, build and they will come. They also attach great importance to international law. Thus, in Everett's first ministerial statement to Parliament, only a few days before Pearl Harbour and in an atmosphere of impending crisis, he found time to express concern that Australia was not legally at war with Finland, Hungary and Romania, explaining that if this was not rectified, the consequences might well be disastrous to Russian morale. 
In somewhat the same spirit, three decades later, another eminent representative of the tradition, Gough Whitlam, was to feel compelled to recognise formally the incorporation of the Baltic states into the Soviet Union, again in order to clarify the legal situation. Realists, on the other hand, tend to be sceptical about the claims made for a system of law that lacks any coercive power to enforce itself. Unlike the Menzies tradition, the Ever tradition draws a sharp distinction between power politics and the United Nations, seeing the latter as laying a foundation for an entirely different international order and norms of behaviour. Action that is sanctioned by the UN has a legitimacy and moral quality that is otherwise lacking. For whatever its shortcomings, the organisation represents an ideal to be striven for. A typical realist reaction to the stress on machinery and forms is that of Norman Mansurg in his magisterial survey of Commonwealth affairs. Quote, Dr. Evert did not appear to understand that no elaboration of machinery could sensibly modify a relationship determined by relative power. This is a tradition represented most clearly on the Labour side of politics, and as well as Evert himself, Whitlam and Gareth Evans have embodied much of what it stands for. The distinguishing mark of the third tradition, call it the Spender-Casey tradition, or if you prefer the Keating tradition, is the importance it attaches to regional affairs. The nature and content of that concern has varied over the decades. Strategic and security matters during and immediately after World War II, support for Indonesian independence by the Chifley government in the late 1940s, the Colombo Plan and other aid to the newly independent states of the region in the 1950s, concern over the increasing instability, violence and radicalization of the region in the 1960s, leading to military involvement in Malaysia and Vietnam, and increasingly from then on a concern to develop relations and to integrate with a region that had become economically dynamic and significant. As Ministers for External Affairs, both Spender and Casey represented this tradition early on, creating and extending the Colombo Plan and developing diplomatic relations with the region's new states. All this in the face of considerable indifference on Menzies' part. According to Spender, Menzies viewed his preoccupation with the region as a hobby horse and was given to saying patronisingly, Come on, Percy, let's have your thesis about Southeast Asia. Menzies' power-centred outlook made him a big-picture man, inclined to play down a regional approach. Regionalism, he once reflected, is open to the view that it may involve nothing more than a slightly enlarged form of isolationism, a collective form of isolationism, if I may use a curious phrase. He tended to regard the parochial affairs of weak, inexperienced regional states as low on the agenda. Like many conservative realists, he was slow to identify and to react to significant forces of change. As time passed, such an attitude towards the region became increasingly unsustainable. 
By the 1990s, Paul Keating was giving priority to regional relationships. In contemplating these three traditions, the question is not which one of them is the right one for Australia to adopt, but what balance or mix of them is appropriate at any given time, as circumstances and the priorities of our interests change. Against this background, what can be said about the policy of the Howard government over the last year and a half? That has been a policy of unhesitating, unqualified, and, given the attitude of many other states, conspicuous support for the United States in its wars against terrorism and against Iraq. As such, it's a policy that can be and has been defended both on Menzian grounds, that is, protecting one's own security and paying one's insurance premium to a great and powerful friend, and in terms of our values, given that it was tyranny and terror that were being attacked. Many people whom I respect have found this combination of arguments a compelling one, demanding support for the policy of the Howard government. I would like to explain why, on realist grounds, I have not. First, a bit of self-protective ground-clearing. As things have not exactly gone according to plan in Iraq, since Saddam Hussein was overthrown, and as a favourable outcome seemed less than certain, it might seem that I'm simply being wise after the event and second-guessing the government, being a Monday morning quarterback, as the Americans say. This isn't so. As it happens, I published a relevant piece on Australian-US relations in the Australian Financial Review on the 10th of September 2001. That is, precisely one day before the terrorist attack on New York and Washington. In it, I argued that, and I quote, Australia should proceed carefully and without illusion in dealing with its powerful ally. For one thing, post-Cold War American foreign policy is still, in some respects, a work in progress. And those who get too close to it run the risk that a piece of the scaffolding might fall off and hit them. Even more important, while the United States is by historical standards a benevolent hegemon, a hegemon is what it is. Not only is its power vast, but it's concerned to use that power to create a world in its own image with institutions and rules determined by Washington. While such a world would have many attractions, the attempt to bring it into being will inevitably generate serious opposition and a great deal of strife and conflict. It would be inappropriate and dangerous for a country of Australia's limited means and interests to associate itself closely with such an enterprise. I went on to maintain that however sweet the rhetoric and however warm the hugging, the priorities of the two countries are likely to differ at least as often as they coincide. I believe that while these arguments had validity before 9-11 and the Iraq War, they, and some additional ones, had even more validity after it. Let me enumerate. First, concerning terrorism. The first and overriding responsibility of an Australian government is not to combat global terrorism generally, 
but to protect this country from terrorism. The two ends are not necessarily identical. By being an early, unqualified and high-profile supporter of American policy, when so many others, including long-standing allies of the United States and some of our neighbours, were expressing serious reservations about both the legitimacy and the effectiveness of that policy, Australia may well have increased rather than decreased its chances of becoming a terrorist target. Second, the course Australia has followed over the last two years is open to the charge that it has got the balance between alliance policy and regional policy wrong. We are living in the same region as the most populous Muslim state in the world, a state that is less than a model of stability and order and which is an acknowledged breeding ground for terror. As well, we are in close proximity to some failed or failing states, which are potential hosts for terrorists. As well as that, and looking ahead, by the year 2050, that is, by the time someone born now will be entering early middle age, the population of the nine countries extending from Pakistan to China will have increased by something in the order of 1.4 billion. That of Indonesia alone is projected to increase by 120 million in that period. While all this doesn't mean that the region is inevitably going to be more unstable or threatening than it is now, it does suggest that its importance is going to loom larger rather than smaller in our strategic calculations and that anything that can justify distracting our attention and resources from it must be of a compelling nature. But third, the case made by the Bush administration for the Iraq war was not compelling. Indeed, it was inconsistent and surprisingly incompetent, with dubious and shifting rationales being offered. One day weapons of mass destruction, the next day links with Al-Qaeda, after that, the cruelty of the regime and the liberation of the Iraqi people, and then Saddam's alleged reckless, unpredictable nature, which it was claimed ruled out deterrence and required preemption. Given all this, caution, restraint, and discussion, rather than eager and unqualified support, would have been an appropriate Australian response appropriate indeed not only in terms of Australia's own interests, but that of its great ally. And it could have been accompanied by a clear statement of our need to give priority to dealing with terror where it was most likely to impinge on us, that is not in the Middle East, but in Southeast Asia. Supporters of the policy might respond to such criticism by saying that however things turn out in Iraq, Australia has built up a lot of credit in Washington and with the American people, and this on its own justifies the policy followed by Prime Minister Howard. Perhaps so. But, and this is my fourth point, in international politics, expectations of gratitude rest on shaky foundations. As Charles de Gaulle once remarked, great powers are cold monsters and gratitude is not one of their stronger motivators. To digress for a moment, when, in 1848, Tsarist Russia intervened 
to put down an insurrection in Hungary, thus saving the Habsburg Empire, which was then in deep trouble, the Habsburg Prime Minister remarked that we shall astonish the world with our ingratitude. Sure enough, half a dozen years later, when Britain and France went to war with Russia in the Crimea, the Habsburgs studiously stayed on the sidelines and offered Moscow no help. But the world was not really very astonished. Now you may think that this example, like de Gaulle's remark, represents the cynicism of old Europe. But it was not de Gaulle, but George Washington, who laid it down that no nation can be entrusted further than it is bound by its interests, and that there can be no greater error than to expect or calculate on real favours from nation to nation. Fifth, these words of Washington's are just as relevant and carry just as much weight when considering another assumption that many Australians, including John Howard, make concerning our American connection, which is that a great deal of weight should be attached to cultural affinity. Listen to Mr Howard in a radio interview expressing a conviction about Australian-US relations that he's repeated many times. They do have a lot of values and attitudes that we share, and I'm a great believer that you should have close relations with the countries whose way of life is closest to your own. Mr Howard is not alone in this belief. In recent years there has been renewed support for an old idea that English-speaking nations with cultural affinities should draw together and form some kind of political and economic union, what has been termed an Anglosphere. The whole notion that cultural affinity can be the solid foundation of a political relationship needs to be treated very warily. Consider this. Great Britain and the United States fought World War II together in an extraordinarily close alliance. One million American troops were stationed in Britain before D-Day. British soldiers fought under American generals and American soldiers under British generals. President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill were in constant touch and there was an extraordinary intimacy between the top people on both sides. The American establishment at the time was very Anglophile and much more WASP, white, Anglo-Saxon and Protestant, than it is now. Yet as soon as the war was over, the United States cut off Lend-Lease aid to a virtually bankrupt Britain and imposed very harsh terms on the loan it negotiated with the Attlee government. And only a decade after that close partnership, when Eisenhower and Anthony Eden, two wartime colleagues, were leading their respective governments, the United States publicly humiliated their British and French allies at the time of the Suez Crisis, forcing them to climb down and leave the canal in Nasser's hands. From this episode, incidentally, the British and the French drew opposite conclusions. The British, that they should never again cross the United States, the French, that they should never again depend on the United States. Coming nearer home, 
All Australian Prime Ministers should bear in mind the American handling of the Dutch New Guinea question in the early 1960s. Despite the ANZUS alliance, and despite the fact that Robert Menzies was a great Western values man whose standing in Washington was high, the Kennedy administration chose to try to placate a radical anti-Western Sukarno over the issue rather than to support either Australia or America's NATO ally, the Netherlands. None of this is meant as a criticism of the United States, which just behaved as great powers normally behave, quite properly putting its own interests ahead of everything else and giving less weight to the views of those whose support can be taken for granted than to those whose support they wish to gain. Most people who follow international politics are familiar with a version of Lord Palmerston's dictum, we have no eternal allies and we have no perpetual enemies. Our interests are eternal and perpetual and those interests it is our duty to follow. But again, George Washington had said it more crisply 50 years earlier. Permanent, inveterate antipathies against particular nations and passionate attachments to others should be avoided. Sixth, for the internationalists of the ever tradition, one of the drawbacks of the policy followed by the Australian government is that it has weakened Australia's position in the UN by associating it conspicuously with a course of action that in the eyes of most members lacked UN authority. Normally this would be a matter of little concern to realists, but at a time when much of the serious diplomatic power game is likely to be played in the UN, as the other permanent members use it to try to restrain the United States, this has more significance than it would normally have. My seventh and last point concerns ends and means. Australia is a large continent to defend. It exists in a region characterised by a great deal of turbulence. As by far the most populous, powerful and wealthy country in the Southwest Pacific, it properly assumes responsibility for stability in some of the smaller countries of the region which have serious problems. To meet these commitments, Australia spends under 2% of its gross national product on defence. It has an army of only 25,000 men. In these circumstances, for it to engage in serious military campaigns beyond its region as well, and to do so preemptively and when it is not directly threatened, is to leave itself open to the charge of being a cheap hawk which is a dangerous and irresponsible thing to be. Punching above one's weight may be a source of pride, but it is also hazardous and a form of activity best avoided. Back in the 1940s, the sage Walter Lippmann wrote a sentence which has a claim to be one of the most important ever written about foreign policy. It reads as follows. Without the controlling principle that the nation must maintain its objectives and its power in equilibrium, its purposes within its means and its means equal to its purposes, its commitments related to its resources 
and its resources adequate to its commitment, it is impossible to think at all about foreign affairs. Those responsible for Australian foreign policy could do much worse than have that sentence framed and hung prominently on their office walls.